Maybe it's okay to look down and feel uncertain, grateful and uncertain. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. And Laura, what do we have on deck for the good folks today? What is going on right now? Okay, so like I feel like an alternate title for this podcast could be like a series of Laura's Twitter brain crushes. And one of them we have today, her name is Taylor Harris. She is the author of an incredible memoir just out from Catapult called This Boy We Made. And I think I started following her because she was kind of a protege. I don't know if protege is the right word. She's someone who's worked a lot with Nicole Chung at Catapult. Right. We'll be bold and call Nicole a friend of the pod. Absolutely. Taylor was getting published a lot by Catapult and publishing these incredibly beautiful essays about parenthood and anxiety and all these different things that like very much interested me. So when her book came out, I was very hot on its tail. And it's such a beautiful book. She's writing a memoir. Really lovely. Yeah, we don't spend too much time like summarizing it in the interview. So let me do a little bit here and Adrian, help me out where I lose it. But This Boy We Made is a memoir about Taylor's family's experience with the still undiagnosed illness of her son, Tofs, that began somewhere in his toddlerhood. And, you know, her life as a parent has been filled with trips to doctors that like result in no further answers and IEP meetings and all of these things and all these ways that she's had to fight for her son's wellness and well-being. Informing all of this is the fact that Taylor and her husband are black and have encountered just an un, un not unbelievable, it's all tragically no, believable. But fairly unremitting, I guess. Yes, an unremitting and offensive amount of medical racism and microaggressions as they went through this process. And Taylor just does such an elegant job of weaving together so many different threads of family, faith, anxiety, parenthood, the medical establishment into this memoir that like, for a book about a sick kid is an incredibly enjoyable and page-turning read, too. You know, like, I will admit I had some trepidation picking this up about how much this book was going to make me cry, and it certainly did, but I loved every minute. (laughs) Like, it's a really enjoyable (laughs) book, despite, you know, the grief of some of its topicality. Yeah. No, I mean, especially because in the end, I mean, it's about faith in so many different ways. Dealing with the things we can't control within the parts of our lives that every fiber of our being wants to control. Completely. If people just want to pick up this book, I mean, I will say that it's the first chapter is immensely triggering just because it's all about... So Tove's first shows symptoms, which is just basically lethargy. So scary. Basically, in the setting where, where it's all the trappings of parental anxiety, toddlerhood anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the boppy pillow, the pillows to make sure he doesn't fall off the bed, all the stuff that we do as parents to sort of... Do you recognize a few of those, a few of those things I in your life? I recognize every single one of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and to claim, to think, to make us think that we have some control, right? Ugh. And then the middle of it is just this mystery of this boy having symptoms that are not, in the end, they're, they're weird, but they're not ultimately, you know... Uh, you know, it's it's nothing recognizably like like something wrong, but it's not rec- like it doesn't read as something. There's nothing obvious. And, and there's this heartbreaking yeah. moment where where Taylor says, you know, she took a video and assumes she did it to sort of show to the doctor later when the doctor smilingly tells her it's nothing. And like, I have to say that really hit home for me. This absolute wish to hear it's nothing. This is normal. Right. Right. Um, and and what happens when year after year after year. 
on the one hand, you don't always get the help you need, but on the other hand, you do not hear that word, oh, it's normal, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's nothing, or don't, don't you're worry. worrying, your anxiety is for nothing, and how that in interacts, you know, for someone who uh, suffers from anxiety with sort of the role of, yeah, just being radically connected to this this other little person. Mm -hmm. as, I mean, I think it's, yeah. So I do think that, you know, for our listeners, uh, we don't dwell on it too much, but, you know, depending on where you are in the uh, anxiety cycle around having children. Mm -hmm. So unless they're sophomores in college, you might just want to move in small steps. <laughs> Take care of yourself. You know, I mentioned that this book has like so many like laugh out loud funny passages about parenting as well. Yeah. And there was one of them that I actually had like a way homer question for Taylor about, <laughs> which I which I DM'd her on Twitter and got a wonderful answer to. So there's a passage in the book where they're trying to figure out essentially like the rate at which Tofs is developing and what what sort of skills he's capable of. Right. And they are incredibly encouraged, they being Taylor and her husband Paul, are incredibly encouraged to discover one day that the kid has made several unauthorized Amazon purchases, which I just like <laughs> died laughing because either both of my kids are probably doing that like as we speak. But <laughs> the items that he purchased on Amazon were like hilarious to me one of them was like an amazon fire tablet which That's you know right. that has some functionality yeah but then the two other things were like very expensive crossbody purses <laughs> and you know i'm just getting this image of taylor as someone who's you know gone through so much from this book and sacrificed so much of herself that i was like I have to know if she kept the purses, you know? So I sent her a Twitter DM and I was like, Taylor, I had a way homer. Did you keep the purses? And she said, haha, absolutely not. The checking account was hurting for like three to five days. And I was just, I've been there, you know, you're, you're trying to reconcile the charges. You're trying to make sure there's enough money in account A to pay off account B. And then your kid, you know, buys you some really expensive purses. So maybe we should send her a purse, I think is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, we are so excited that you decided to join us for this discussion with Taylor Harris, the author of This Boy We Made, which is out now from Catapult, and like we could not recommend it more highly. Thank you so much for joining us for another week of being book nerds together, and uh, we hope you'll come back for more. Enjoy. Taylor Harris, I like feel like I know you in the most inappropriate, like you've written a lot of very vulnerable nonfiction way. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to try not to freak you out with like how much I know about you from reading every byline you've ever published. I love it. But I guess where I want to start is like, whose shoulders do you stand on? Like, who are the writers that carry you here? Who are your big influences? And most to the point, who did you love before you were cool is a way that I like to <laughs> pose that question. <laughs> well, I am just finding out that I am cool, I guess. Um, so I'm still in the before period. But there are so many and I know I'll miss some. Um, but you know, Nicole Chung has always been someone I both look up to. And she's like sort of this parallel peer friend going through some of the same things. And it's really somebody I model, I want to model my life after her and the way that she's so generous to other writers. 
you know, writing is hard and, and Nikki's always also like edited and done these other projects as she writes books. And, you know, for sure she has her boundaries, but it's like when she can, she's there for other, uh, especially writers of color and women. And I really appreciate that. Totally. Yeah. I also just picked up South to America. So I'm really eager to read that. Um, Citizen by Claudia Rankin is mm -hmm. one. I, it's probably behind me right now. Um, <laughs> I always keep that. Even sometimes it's just an essay. Like I know Ross Gay is like an amazing poet, right? But I came to him through his prose. And I always say like, forget about it when a when a poet decides they want to write prose like all of us should just back down <laughs> and so <laughs> true yeah he has this essay called uh, I think it's called some thoughts on mercy and that was published in the sun I think and it's something I come back to again and again I know that essay you do it's so beautiful it's something I come it back is. to again and again too yeah it's unfair I'm like you're talking about bees and then you're talking about like, totally. like, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Uh, <laughs> I agree with you. And then like, I even like fiction. Fiction is kind of where I go to like, I just feel like I don't have a lot of responsibility there because I have so mm. much responsibility in other areas of my life. So like, Y'all Jesse's Transcendent Kingdom was sort of like a book I kept by my bed while I was writing my own, which might seem kind of strange, but the way she structured her novel and the themes that she um, dealt with, the topics that she dealt with really resonated with me. So I'm a little bit all over the place. I'll like, when I teach my class, I'll throw in some David Sedaris, you know, it's just sort of mm. like, mm. I'm up for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. What are you teaching right now? Or what do you like to teach? Um, last semester, uh, I taught intro to creative nonfiction at Penn State, and it was just a really cool opportunity. I mean, as you know, I'm a person with anxiety, so I fought my therapist a long time about it. I was like, I have a book coming out. I can tell you 10 reasons why I should not teach this class. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, she, and, you know, she just quietly said, well, what are you motivated by? Are you motivated by fear? And I said, absolutely. And so then we started. Yes. <laughs> Um, and so then we spent some weeks working through it and what it might mean to be like a good enough teacher or good enough, you know, adjunct, you know, <laughs> that's real. That's real. I, it is. That, well, and that to me comes back to the, the like classic D.W. Winnicott, like the good enough mother, too, which is mm -hmm. such a crucial concept that I have such a hard time ever like fully inhabiting, <laughs> you know, and that is to a degree what anxiety is, isn't it? It's just like the the ability the ability never to feel like anything is enough ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. And I think like I'm learning that it's just sort of like a lifetime thing for me. It's not like something I think there was a point in my life where I thought I could like get rid of it. Like mm -hmm. enough pills, enough therapy, enough prayer. Like you can pretty much make this really tiny. Um and I think in my thirties, let's be honest, I'm I'm nearing forty is when I'm starting to figure out like this might be here to stay and how can I like cope and shift and and sometimes just accept it you know mm. well I think and Adrian I swear I'm gonna let you get a word in as edgewise like eventually but like I feel like your book shines such an important light on what the function of anxiety is you know because mm. on the one hand anxiety is an engine that causes an incredible amount of suffering and some of it feels like very unnecessary suffering you write about the sin of hyperbole which is also like a vice of mine <laughs> mm. and and yet 
your book also demonstrates so clearly and beautifully how what I would call like the hypervigilance that's sort of associated with the, the way anxiety presents itself in you allowed you to notice and take seriously things that other people would not have noticed or take taken seriously. So mm-hmm. like, how would you, how have you processed that part of the journey of like how anxiety for back, lack of a better way to put it, like ha- helped this situation in certain ways? Yeah. I was just talking to someone about that and that, you know, there's a piece in the book where I say sort of like, how do I deal with this thing that has also helped lead me to a truth. Mm. And for me, you know, that could look like I talk about sort of heart arrhythmias or uh, palpitations. And, you know, just recently, I was on the Peloton and feeling something. And, you know, I that's always my first reaction. Like, it's nothing, it's nothing, push it aside. I still do that. And finally got an echocardiogram. And they were like, you know, nothing too serious. But yes, we did notice this. And it's just like, okay, I think like this is a theme (laughs) to pay attention to Mm -hmm. in life. So I think I am in that sense. I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, I love my anxiety. It makes me who I am. I would always keep it. Honestly, I, I tell Paul all the time, like if I had, if I were you, like if I didn't have like one ounce of anxiety, I would take over the world, (laughs) like pinky in the brain (laughs) style, you know? Um, (laughs) so I'm not, (laughs) I don't love it in that sense, but yes, looking back at that morning, especially April 1st, when Toast woke up and was really lethargic and out of it. Um, my abilities to sort of like take note, observe, yes, um, log it in my memory. Like, do I think that was crucial? Yeah, I do. Yeah, because that's all that's anxiety, but it's also intuition, right? Yeah. Which is a really powerful and unignorable force in all of this mm. that I feel like threads its mm-hmm. way through the whole story of just like this in this intuition and curiosity, you know, like a desire yeah. to know is is really like what propels this whole story forward. Okay, Adrian, I will I will like shut up for a second. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just wanted to say I think it's also fascinating to hear you talk about anxiety and as something that that you can't wish away and that that mm. you live with in however reduced a way because that's of course what the the book kind of ends up being about too but but managing about liminality yeah well about about figuring out a way to to live with the unknown and unknowable to some extent which is you know to some extent what anxiety is and i really like the way that that in some way it, it comes to this point of yeah detente where it's like well it's it's there but uh it's not there in the way it was there before. And mm-hmm. I don't read that many memoirs, but it, it struck me as very unusual in that, you know, there, that nothing's being overcome. And it does feel like to me, but it felt for that very reason, extremely true in that, in that it is about, there's this thing that I couldn't control mm-hmm. in the middle of all these other things that I was very anxious to control. And then I, then it's, it's a question of, of reconciliation with that aspect of life. And I, I thought that that mm. was, that was beautiful. Thank you, Adrian. I got to tell you a quick story um, leading up to publication. I have a great agent, a great team at Catapult too. And my agent, I think, had sent out some feelers to some movie people. And I get this like, you know, my inbox, uh, I get like this ping when I'm in like the grocery store, I think. And it's like, it's from, you know, some movie company, but the people are like, um, it's a great story. Like we fell in love with her writing, but sort of like in order to do a film, we'd love to have a diagnosis. <laughs> and I was like, 
was like weird because I don't, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've been loving the uncertainty personally. Yeah, I'm really chill about not having like you know CF the whole book. Yeah. So thank you is oh, what God. I'm trying to say for saying to you that that feels true. Yeah. yeah. Well, Adrian, I love the way you put that. You know, the the charge of living living inside the unknowable, right? Mm. Because that is definitely a description of the project of anxiety. So too is that a description of the project of faith, of the project mm. of writing, of the project of mothering, of living. Exactly, like we yeah. are all living inside this sort mm -hmm. of glass case of uncertainty, doing the best we can. <laughs> and I don't know, Taylor, I have a very similar relationship as you to like faith, anxiety, and sugar. Um, really? <laughs> so really? I was, I was really relating. Is that called to, a holy trinity? Is it right? is a holy trinity <laughs> for me, yes. <laughs> I was really relating to the moments when you were like, and Paul was over here scheduling and diagramming, and I was eating a bag of red velvet donuts. Yes. <laughs> like, bring red on velvet. the donuts, Taylor. Yes. I'm there with you. <laughs> but, like, that's so real, you know? Like, you have to stay alive and mm -hmm. in order to protect your child, and part of staying alive is caring for yourself in even the most seemingly eccentric and irrational ways. So yeah. I, I think the red velvet donuts were a gift from God, personally. That's right. That's right. Sugar shack donuts that's where i got it from that's it's almost <sighs> like a like a little chapel <laughs> i i could I, I couldn't read your book hungry it wasn't possible <laughs> but like so as we're bringing sort of faith and theology into this one thing that i was thinking about a lot as i read this book is like you are clearly someone with a fierce attention to morals and ethics like obviously this is a very crucial part of your life and i'm really curious how how you brought that to bear on the ethical question of like a mother writing about minors like mm. i can't imagine that didn't occur to you so like how did you reason through that? Like, what choices did you make in that ethical process? Uh, for one, once Toast was old enough, I knew he couldn't. I mean, how do you say, can anybody really understand what goes into a book or a memoir, especially before it's written? So I, I sort of knew I didn't want to just get away with this, but I did stop him. He was actually like in the house near the hallway. I remember stopping him and just sort of being like, Toast, mommy might write a book and share some about your story. Like, would, what do you think about that? And he was mm -hmm. like, I think you should do it. <laughs> and so that wasn't like my only consideration because again, like you said, he's very minor. He was probably like seven at the time. Sure, sure. But I do check in with him mm -hmm. as much as I can. Then I listen to other mom writers. There's really no consensus. And this is something that no, might there come. No, right? And yeah. it, it might come back you know, in six months or a year or 20 years where I have to say that, you know, actually I've changed my mind about what I did. That said, I am like a very sort of, I, I move through life like by, like you said, intuition, feelings, images sort of, and impressions. And I really felt strongly like a hundred percent that this was a story that deserved to be shared. I know that in sharing my story of motherhood, obviously I'm exposing parts of Toves that he, you know, has some idea I might be sharing, but won't really know the ins and outs until he's old enough to read it. Mm -hmm. And so that is, I mean, that's a risk and that I don't have a clear, you know, Paul would have a clear answer for that. He would probably give you a pro and con list. I'm sort of like, ah, I prayed, I felt, I think. Yeah. And here it's like, here's what I have to offer the world. I think it's worthwhile and I hope, you know, if Toast is hurt or burdened at some point, we can talk through it. Yeah. 
It's such a really difficult, I've confronted this in my own work too, like there is a fundamental chicken or egg question of like writing about motherhood, right? Like if you are to, and I am so in favor of mothers writing about motherhood, but there is this water's edge of like the way I think about it is I try to write about my own experiences from my point of view, you know, which you also did. But as you say, there is a point, like I didn't become a mother without these children. (laughs) So there's a point at which your truth is bumping up against theirs. And I also totally agree with you that there's no consensus because I think for a long time, the consensus was that mothers should like shut the hell up and just like cook and not talk about it. Um, So to break that very patriarchal consensus I think requires some discomfort you know and some risk taking as you've done for sure for sure and I think they'll all you know all three of my kids are different like Toast doesn't like pictures a lot of times Mm. but he'll like open himself up for my projects others you know my daughter Elliot the oldest is like very quiet out in public or even at school but she's also been asking like are you gonna write about me like are you gonna tell them about me sure sure (laughs) and Juliet, my youngest, is like quite fearless um, and sensitive. And I think she'll be an artist one day. <laughs> and she also doesn't want to be left out, you know. And so I, I think these things will change and shift over time. And honestly, I'll just have to be open to having those sorts of honest conversations. The one thing I don't ever want them to feel is like if they're honest with me, that like I'll be too hurt or too sensitive where we can't have a real talk. Yeah, Mm. man, as you were talking about your like young artistic child, I was like, well, the comeuppance (laughs) that's coming for both you and me, Taylor, is someday they're going to write about us. (laughs) (laughs) And we will have to extend all the grace that we wished from them in that moment. That's what's coming, I think. (laughs) Why did you say that? My friend and I have just like, we've agreed that like, just she's basically like, she doesn't have children, but she's like, I just think you should start like, every parent should just try to start a therapy fund for their kids and like, just accept it. It's just proactive. And that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like just accept that this is going to happen. <laughs> it's like a swear jar for every yeah. essay you write about them for every, um, <laughs> just throw 200 bucks into the therapy. There's another <laughs> yeah, week. Yeah. It's like one, another, another week. Yeah. Another session. Yeah. Oh my God. Exactly. That's so real. Did that inflect the editing process mm. as well? Cause it's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking Nicole has, for instance, a very different approach to to how she writes about her family. Like that's true. Did that? I mean, that that strikes me as interesting, right? Like that that means communicating across these kind of equally reasonable but quite different answers to the same problematic. Did you did that come up? It's really interesting. So in that way, I do I pay a lot of attention to Nicole as a writer and as a mom. As an editor, she sort of. She presents like without any judgment. And so I would kind of push and then come back and she would say like, and this is, sorry, this is my column for Catapult, which came before the book. And do you want to show a picture? And if you show a picture, do you want to show his face? And so she would ask these questions and I would, it it just gave me the space to feel out my own path and maybe even to sometimes go too far and then pull back. Or I think at one point she mentioned like letting her husband, she wrote a little bit about one of her, children and let her Mm. husband read Mm -hmm. it and so that also was sort of like a flag to me like okay like this is all in my head 
And I sort of just assume that people around me know what's in my head. <laughs> Maybe I should like share a draft with Paul before it goes goes to press, yeah. you know? And so I've tried to be better yeah. about things like that. It's complicated. I get so many questions from my students in nonfiction about the ethics of writing about family members. Like that is like looms largest mm. in the word cloud of sort of anxieties. Yeah. And like you say, there's no consensus. I'm remembering a really transformative nonfiction class I had in graduate school that one of my classmates was the daughter of a pretty famous Southern novelist who had since died. And she, the daughter was writing a memoir about both of her parents who I think had struggled with addiction. And she described to the class the process of bringing the first draft to her mother and like sort of asking permission and her mother coming back and saying this incredible thing that still makes me cry, which was write whatever you want, just make it clear that you loved me. And I was like, so much grace. I would never be capable of saying that. Like I can just own that I will always fall short of that kind of liberation. (laughs) But that just seemed like such a loving statement of a parent to like an author child, you know? Absolutely. Right? I want to like write that down. Like even if I don't mean it, like I'll just read it from a note card in 10 years. Like that that's really helpful. I could at least work yeah, toward that. Because you can't outright right. slander someone if you're making it clear that you love, you know, you can't yeah. you can't two-dimensionalize a person if you're making it clear that you love yeah. them. Like I thought that was a really beautiful precept that I now sometimes share that's with really students. Nice. Yeah, for sure. And I think like going back to your question about Tofs, one thing um is that I knew that I wanted this one day to read like a love letter to mm-hmm. him. And so that's still sort of my hope. I don't know what kind of love letter. It's obviously not in that form, but I, I sort of wanted, I knew I wanted him to step away with that feeling. I mean, I think that comes through. There is yeah. a, a deep investment just in, you know, he, he comes so alive and in, in a way that, you know, I think it's, it's hard for some, writing about someone this young. And I think that oh that's, that seems yes. to me like a really nice, nice way to think about it. Just, just that the love comes through and, and that sort of makes a lot of it okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, Laura, your your colleague yeah. is, is wise. I think I went to school with the same person, by the way. Really? I think I know who this is, and I think um, I think it's the same person, and she is very wise. That would be interesting, and we can compare notes off the record. Um, <laughs> well, like, so speaking of the record, you know, Taylor, I want to say I started noticing and reading your essays a few years ago, and was like, who is this Taylor Harris? She is on fire. Like, she is writing about things that I care about. This is amazing. Aww. I'm going to do a bad job placing the timeline of this, so I'm going to ask you to help me out. But around the same time it seemed like your family got kind of thrust into the public eye because of Paul's like very controversial tenure case yeah so I don't know exactly what sort of question well let me say first if you don't want to talk about this please just tell us and we can like delete away but I assume that some of this is on the public record already like how did that go for you I guess is the best question I can formulate like how did that impact your writing how did that impact the process of putting out this book like that must have been a lot to deal with yeah yeah you know what thanks for saying that because sometimes I forget I already had the book deal but you know you sell a a nonfiction book or a memoir on the basis of a proposal you get your contract Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. all I had (laughs) were like some some thoughts that the publisher trusted me on (laughs) I still had to write the entire thing and so looking back I'm like Oh, so Paul found out that he was denied tenure. I believe it was January 30th or 31st, 
2020. Can we put into context a little bit? He was denied tenure both at the university of which he was an alum and where he had also been teaching. So like your family's roots were deep at UV. Like he was a very known quantity, I think is important to contextualize. Paul and I met on the trolley that goes around Charlottesville and UVA. Um, I lived on the lawn. Like I never thought I was like the best or brightest. That's not my point. But you sort of like, I think we bought into a lot of UVA. Like, we could still sort of step back and criticize sure. it the way I do America. And I felt like that was our right. But there was still some of it where you were like, no, I've met my best, like, Black friends here. This was a special place for us. For sure. <laughs> and so, you know, Paul doesn't cry a lot. <laughs> I think he cried on our wedding day. And I knew when he walked in the door, I knew he'd been crying. He had talked to his dean and he had gone in and he was completely blindsided. He'd done all the right things. He'd had, um, you'll know the better terminology for this than I do, but like whatever his veto was or his package that he put together, whatever he spent all summer working on and, and sharing with people to have them give input. And, and you know, all, the whole time I thought you're overdoing it. This is overkill. You're going to be fine. He'd done all the right things. And even on the way into the meeting with the dean, the person who walked him in and knew that he would be denied was making small talk, I think about baseball. And just the whole thing just like set me on fire. Like, it's not that the person could have said like before he met with his dean, like, guess what's up ahead. But just sort of that casual privilege is, I think, what made me want to explode. So Paul comes in. I can tell he's been sad. He's been crying. And we have somebody in our house there who's like a friend, but also does some interior decorating. And we had like asked her (laughs) to like take a look at our bathroom, like something very mundane, you know, and he has to like face her and face me Mm -hmm. in this moment of just like being absolutely distraught. And, you know, Paul is sort of like, okay, I can't believe this is happening, but it's happened. And, you know, we'll figure it out. And eventually he puts together this appeal and, and even the appeal, I'm like, oh my gosh, like they made some major errors in this decision. Like the provost and the president are going to see this and they're going to be like, this this can't fly. He eventually hears back from the provost, his appeal is denied, even though there were errors, just like false information. I mean, also known as lies in, in the committee's yeah, report. for that would be, yes. <laughs> um, so I don't know exactly what happened. All I know is I was writing a piece. I was thinking, I think it was called whiteness can't save us. And I don't even remember what started that piece, but I start drafting it and I decide to include the tenure denial in it. And I'm just like, Paul, can I do this? And he's like, fine. All I know is that piece comes out and suddenly I have this idea to to email the article with a note to everybody I can find on like UVA's administrative like website. And like, while I'm watching- shit. Queen shit. I love that. Go on. Everybody thinks about it, but you did it. You That's fantastic. did it. But maybe you, that's the yes. thing, right? When you have nothing left to lose. Totally. You know, he was supposed to have another, they give you what, a year of employment and then you're mm-hmm. gone. And so I just, I'm like President Ryan. Everybody says he's a decent dude. Like he goes running with college students. Like I'm a, I'm an email him and see what's up. As an alum, you are emailing him, like as a stakeholder in this decision. Yes. Right. I'm like, maybe I should have given money to the Alumni Association. But (laughs) 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 But, I mean, and the funniest thing is nobody really knows this. As I'm emailing President Ryan, my 
she's what, three then? Three-year-old is learning to ride a two-wheeler out in the cul-de-sac. So I actually like hit send without finishing the email and have to go back and be like, so sorry. I promise like I'm a mom. I didn't mean to do that. This is really serious. Ignore that last email. Like you have your one shot and it's like, you're, you're, I mean, that's life, right? Sent from my iPhone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he wrote back and he was like, he wasn't like decision reverse, but he was like, I get it. Like you're a mom. (laughs) Uh, And so I just went down the line. I don't even know who I emailed. Um, I had friends like take the article, send copies to his door. And then I just, it just seemed, I have to go back and really interrogate like the timeline, like how it happened. But, you know, some of his former students started a letter and it just gained steam. Somebody he went to school with, Lindsay Davis, is like an, a TV anchor. So she picked up the story and it just like... It blew up. It was all over Twitter. Yeah. I mean, this really broke Twitter down. Yeah. I mean, I was reading this guy's qualifications on Twitter. I as nobody. And I was like, who denies this guy tenure? Like, it's ridiculous. But I, I remember <laughs> I remember the sort of fever pitch of a lot of what you're describing here. And like, yeah. the story really going... Yeah. Broadly. Yeah. I remember somebody, uh, Dr. Tressie McMillan Cotton, she was like, um, she was like, I've never seen anybody like fight like this for tenure. And then she she had like one of the little logos we'd made with information on it. And she was like, but like support. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, well, once Dr. Yeah. Tressie weighs in, I mean, good. she knows. <laughs> Jeez. So then how did this saga end like I think I know some of it but like what happened with his appeal case and like you don't live in Charlottesville now (laughs) Topes by the way is very sad about that we have a lot of neighbors who still to this day will text me and be like I am so effing mad at UVA (laughs) but anyway yeah just I think again I'll have to check with Paul for the dates because the call came into him but it was in July of 2020 and a notably calm time in America. I was just going to say. July of 2020. Yeah. Everybody oh knows what 2020 was like in so many ways. Pandemic, you know, George Floyd, like we could go on and on. Mm-hmm. So it's in that time. Oh, and I'm preparing to have a life-changing surgery. <laughs> His dean calls him and just like quiet as day, just like reverses the decision. And I think what's so upsetting is that there's no apology, right? There's no (gasps) repentance. No, it's just that it's played like when you turned in your materials, because they had him return his whole packet in, whatever, again, that packet is called. He turned it all back in and they were going to take another look. And so basically they said that by talking to some of his other colleagues, as in the Black people who should have been on his committee in the first place, they were then able to really understand his work. Oh, come on. Under public pressure as Twitter is yeah. burning down, as the Dr. <laughs> Tressie McMillan Cottom is exerting yeah. some pressure. Yeah. Oh, suddenly a change of heart. Incredible. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, Although it's really impressive that you managed to do that in the at all. I mean, it's yeah, you know, they, they're, they're usually they're they're incredibly they're incredibly resistant to admitting that, you know, especially if it's if part of it feels racially motivated because they are just afraid that usually universities have a history of this. And then it yeah. becomes really, really scary for them because they're like, oh shit, we've pulled this like 20 times. If, if everyone sues us now, but I was like, no, it must be right. Uh, Cause otherwise the last 19 times yeah. aren't right either. Yeah. Um, so really kudos for that. That's, that's really impressive. And to be honest, there's a way they could have sunk Paul and that would have been 
you know, you can still look at everything he's done and sort of in a subjective way, write it off. Right. And I think that would have been harder to fight, but there were so many errors. I just, I still don't understand like, like why, why give the wrong number of citations for somebody when that's something anybody can Google. And so there were, there were errors like that. And I just, I'll never know what happened behind the scenes, but uh, it was just too many. There were too many errors. I think a lawsuit, you know, they would have settled for a lot. So it reminds me of that Toni Morrison quote, the function, the very serious function of racism is to distract Mm. us from doing our work. Like what could possibly demonstrate this better than that? Right. Like I love and hate that quote. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, I don't even know how to formulate this into a question. So how does this end for you guys? I mean, it doesn't end. We are all living in the uncertainty. You continue to live in the uncertainty. But like, when was the decision made by the Harris family? Yeah, Yeah, sorry. I got so like up in that time period. Don't apologize. Of course Um, you did. (laughs) Uh, So there was a dean of the education school here at Penn State who had paid attention to Paul, I think even before the, the tenure stuff hit the fan and just appreciated his work and you know, we sort of slowly started considering, like, we thought Charlottesville was home forever. Could we move Mm -hmm. somewhere else? Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, you know, I can write anywhere. I was working on the book. We heard the schools, the public schools here could be a good place for our kids. Um, That's still to be determined. (laughs) But also Paul's work would be appreciated and he'd have good colleagues, um, Black colleagues he can, you know, have conversations with. And that has been absolutely true. Like, uh, you know, I don't know how long we'll be in state college or what I'll say at the end of the day about our experience. It's complicated here, too. But I will always say, like, he had his work is appreciated where he is now. And I feel like that's important. That's very important. I've always wondered that about tenure denial. Like, even if you choose to ride out the one year after that, like, how do you face your colleagues after that? How do you go to work after that? How do you feel? How do you feel empowered to do your work after that? I don't know. I don't know. How toxic. Yeah. And I'll tell you one more story that almost nobody knows, but we went into his office after it all went down and we were still trying to decide if we were going to move. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we go in the elevator and the elevator mid like it's not flight. Right. But as it's going between floors, it starts like shaking. And like I've been on a lot of rickety elevators in my day. It's a great it thing wasn't... for someone who lives with anxiety. Just the ricketiest possible, most suspenseful elevator ever. Perfect. Something <laughs> was wrong with it. And we got off. Like Paul actually admitted later, he was like, I was scared. I thought that like this thing might plunge. And we were like, that's the sign. We're getting out of here. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the the fact that like the book is about anxiety in situations where you can tell that the operations of power mm. and of privilege might exclude you, where where anxiety sort of both is something you want to tamp down because it's just it, right. it's not nice to feel it, but on the other hand, if you sense that it could be perfectly justified and yeah. it might be life saving, yeah. um, right? And I, I think I think about that with respect mm. to you know tenure denial too that that there is. 
you know, of course, that's a, that's a crazy making time for anyone who goes through that. But there's this additional kind of layer there where, where you just know that what they're saying mm-hmm. is you don't have a place here. And that can mean a couple of things, right? It could mean that the, you know, they genuinely think the scholarship is not good, or it means that by that, they mean something very, very different. And to me, that was also so important about the book. I mean, you can talk a little bit more about that. The The way in which, you know, anxiety both is kind of just like a way of existing in the world, but it also... It's about existing in this world, right? Mm-hmm. Where doctors, you know, discount you for very predictable reasons, where you may not push back against the doctor depending on who they yeah. are. And I love that fact that like, you know, that that it's not sort of listen to your anxiety, don't listen to your anxiety, overcome your anxiety. It's like, that's not the point. The point is it, it it's about fitting into a world that is shaped in yeah. these ways that are anxiety making and where anxiety can be an incredibly helpful mm. helpful guide would you think that's a fair characterization or did you end up coming to terms with it on a more sort of global scale like did it travel with you pretty well from charlottesville <laughs> uh, to state college i yeah, guess yeah, what yeah. i'm asking it made the flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah i'm pretty sure it came with the moving trucks it was like we're here too <laughs> no it it did it comes with me everywhere actually after my first surgery i was referred to a new therapist at uva who spends some of her time with the cancer center there. So anybody who sort of is high risk or has a history of cancer. And that's been really helpful sort of as this whole adult, as my friends Mm -hmm. might say, to like revisit some of my work with anxiety. Because when I was a teenager, it was very much like, how do we stop these panic attacks? And it is some of the same CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. But the problem is at 38, like, I rarely have panic attacks, but my anxiety manifests in all these other ways. So like back to the book, like I, you know, I don't know exactly how it all fits in, but I am a ridiculous people Mm. pleaser. That's something I hate. Like it's gotten worse in the pandemic, I guess, because I'm seeing fewer people, but like any person at the grocery store at Wegmans, I'm like, (laughs) I will like run over to the side with my cart to like let them through. And I'm like, Like, that's nice. You don't like, sure, give somebody else a chance. But like, I don't win an award for like clearing the most aisles for other people. And I think part of what bothers me is it'll be black people sometimes, but like a lot of times it is white people. And I think that, like, that's hard to talk honestly about that. Like, I think some of the baggage uh, or the maybe maladaptive, like coping I, I got from like, or I learned from growing up was like, I was the only one. I did what I could. A lot of times I was either the token, um, which felt okay sometimes, but I was also really lonely and I was not like the friend to hang out with on the weekend. So I would be Mm -hmm. like on the homecoming court and I'd be alone every Friday night and just find out about friends who were hanging out who never invited me. And so I just think, you know, I think it's complicated. There's a quote that I keep up here now because I'll forget it. It's on my dry erase board. It says, be careful where you take your steps in that place. They did not build it with your face Mm -hmm. in mind by Rose J. Percy. And I think like, that's real. Yeah. I mean, that's a book, right? Like I could sit with that and just think of all the things. And I was just so thankful that Catapult as like a publisher was like, no, you, my editor, Julie Button was like, you bring your anxiety and you bring the racism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You get to bring all these things to bear here. And it doesn't have, yes, you have to 
take your readers with you. You have to come to some sort of ending or resolution, but it doesn't have to be like a pretty bow or like you were saying, Adrian, right. it's not necessarily a story of like overcoming or climbing the mountain, you know? Ugh. I relate to the people pleasing so much, particularly in medical settings when you're dealing with these people who have all of these sort of credentials and qualifications and they, you know, I've been in the pediatric ICU with a three-year-old and like still Mm. felt the inclination to be like, yes, thank you. Whatever you say, you know, thank you so much. I'm not, I don't know. You wrote so many times about not wanting to be that mom that, Oh, and I'm just like, first of all, I'm like, who is she and why is she still haunting us all, that mom? (laughs) Like, I don't have a sufficient answer to that question. (laughs) But I felt that urge so fiercely in the prenatal checkups. Oh, I'm not any trouble. You don't need Mm. to worry about me, you know, and like, I feel them even in emergency situations. So this is not like all of my questions. This is not working towards a question. This is just like, I deeply relate to the people pleasing and how I guess the question is how the fuck do we get rid of it? I don't know. (sighs) Yeah, I don't know. I do like, I don't know what, where this idea comes from. I don't know that it's like a Christian Mm. idea or something or comes from like a religion, but Paul and I talk about sort of the same test coming back around until you like sort of pass it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And all all I know is I have not passed this test. And (laughs) I think it bothers me the most when it involves my kids. Like, yeah, sure. Like walk all over me and that sucks. But I, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of sit back and reflect and deal with it. But it tends to happen also. It tends to involve my kids because I'm a mom. And that's really hard for me because there are some times where I gear up and I know I'm going to have to advocate for my kids or I'll get angry. And then it's like crystal clear what I need to do. And then there are these other gray spaces where like, I know I should say something or do more or react more quickly. And I still, I'm like, you know, I'm curious. I don't have an answer, but I'm curious at like, at what point did that develop in me that like, there's some sort of reward that part for me acting this way, you know? Well, and I do often wonder how I, I also speak Christianized language and like I often wonder how like the sort of implantation of Christian ethics can muddy these waters sometimes, yeah. right? Because what yeah. we're taught is it's your job to help everybody. It's your job to care mm-hmm. about, you know, the lost, the least, the left out, the looked over. It's your your job to care about the people you meet every day as family, the people you meet every day casually, mm-hmm. and the people you will never meet, right? Hmm. It is totally possible to kill oneself, you know, in the name of that mission. But like, I don't believe that's God's purpose for us, you know, to kill ourselves in the name of that mission. So I I, I very deeply relate to the conflict between those impulses. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, with Christianity, at least in America, it can like swing back and forth. So you've got people like you described on that side where you're like, like, I can almost sort of hang with those people and be like, we're probably doing too much. Like, (laughs) we're gonna wear ourselves out. But then it's like the other extreme seems worse to me, like the people who are so concerned only with their rights, right? That there's like no reflection to me of Christ. And so I can actually see where I probably tend to huddle with with the ones who who have like probably maybe worse boundaries, you know? Yeah. But they're trying to be loving. (laughs) Well, and I think that women are consistently rewarded and praised for having terrible boundaries. In particular, mothers are very often praised for their sacrifices. Mm -hmm. So that makes it even harder to find like the hard line for oneself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I write about in the book too, just sort of how my parents grew up and what they had to give up and how they hadn't finished college and sort of, you know, and I never thought of myself as like a first generation college student, but 
we sort of were, me and my sisters. Um, and so also some of it was just trying to like maybe overcompensate for what I felt like they had missed out on. Sure. And also with that, just sort of mixed messages, I think about like what it would be to be a woman and a strong woman and independent and be able to stand on my own. Um, and so there wasn't really a script, I guess, or a template for like, okay, be strong, do your own yeah. thing. And like, if you happen to meet like a guy on the trolley with really long eyelashes who seems cute, like <laughs> maybe you could also build a life together and not like, yeah. not that, that that wouldn't be sort of like lying down, like giving up all my dreams yes. to yes. be with him, you know? Those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. Right. Like your <laughs> dreams and love. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, we're talking about a lot of different things. And one of them is like scholarship and research. And there seemed to be a lot of research that went into this book, you know, arguably mm. about experiences that you had already lived. Like I noticed that you were often quoting from Toph's actual medical records. You were often quoting like what doctors had written in their notes, but not told you in the room or that you couldn't remember mm. if they had told you in the room. So I'm really curious what the process of acquiring those records was like. Like, how did you go about that? And did you encounter any resistance to acquiring those records? Yeah, Laura, you are my best friend because nobody has asked about that. And I tend really? to forget. Yeah. And I, I mean, not in a, in a bad way, but it's just like, it's a memoir sort of comes from my no, life. It was very researched. Yeah. I had to sit back and look at like a box in my closet over here and be like, whoa, that was a lot. The medical records for Toast were probably easier to get. I did something like magical on my computer and I didn't think I had done it right. And then like weeks later, I get these huge boxes left wow. <laughs> on the porch. It was kind of like as mysterious as you could imagine. Like, I guess I clicked the right things. <laughs> and then I somehow got my records released. I, um, I called somehow. I know what it was even years before, I think even before I got the book contract, I had called a doctor's office in Ohio and they, you know, it's like old school. I was born in 83. You guys know all my business now. I was too. I sensed we were about the same no age. No way. Like her reference points. I, I understand them. Yes. I was. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm like, you watch Daria too? Uh, only every day while I was AOL <laughs> chatting with my friends, like it was my job. Yes, Taylor, I am an elder millennial. <laughs> I love this. Um, also from the so Midwest. Warm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So I was able to call and get like, like really copied records, like, like in print from some of my appointments. Um, they like pulled the ones that they thought might be relevant. And so I had just like, again, I'm not the most organized J person on the Myers-Briggs, but I just took time to like, just literally like hole punch and put stuff in binders and try to set up a timeline. I would write like big events that I wanted covered on note cards and sort of tape those along the wall in a sort of timeline. And then Paul found out about dry erase wall paint some somewhere. And that became my favorite thing. And now we just, Incredible. we do not exist without a dry erase wall. Like I'm like, what do other people use? And so it was a lot of moving things around. And to be honest, there was a point where I had drafted the book with all that research and sent it to Julie. It might've been the second draft or third. And one of the drafts where I felt like, okay, this isn't perfect, but like, this is a full draft. <laughs> And she had to very politely, like, praise me, praise me, praise me, because she gets how my anxiety is. And then at the bottom be like, but also, like, this isn't there yet. <laughs> and I was like, no. So to answer your question, it was it was a lot of research. And 
Just thanks for acknowledging that. I get it, man. I mean, also, I just have to shout out to Julie Bunton, who is one of the best in the game as an author and an editor. I'm obsessed with her. And I think it's really interesting to think about Nicole in in relation to this work, because she also writes deeply researched personal memoir, you know, Mm -hmm. that confronts a lot of these same ethical questions about family. So I think you had a really great team of allies on your side there. What a gift. was. And, you know, I should have trusted Nicole earlier. I feel like she mentioned it early on before I decided I wanted to write a book and she was like I actually think Julie would be great and I'm thinking like nah you're just saying that because she edited your book Mm -hmm, you know Mm -hmm. like there's no way she's gonna be a fit and from the first time she sent me notes on like my very early draft of anything I was like oh my goodness she's the one you know one thing that I'm curious about is like what the pandemic has been like this is me purely speaking as like your fellow mother of small children who has been like slowly losing her mind in this time like What's the pandemic been like for you? Like, have you, has, have your kids been in school? Have you had time to write? Like, what's, yeah. what's the rhythm of your life been like? It's been better since we moved, I would say. They were home for yeah. a long, I, I'm like, how long was that? March 2020? Lost all concept so, of time. No, yes, completely. <laughs> but virtual, and, and like, God bless the teachers. This is not a slight, I mean, they, Never. they, I don't know how they did what they did, right? But like virtual schooling overall just sort of, step back objectively was like not great for for my kids even my my youngest who was in an all-day preschool before we tried to switch her to zoom and she was like she's like me she was like zoom preschool can die in a fire taylor i mean again i am not here to impugn teachers at all right right. (laughs) conceptually it can die in a fire please continue She was like, she was basically trying to tell me like, mommy, it makes me nervous. (laughs) And I was like, I get it. (laughs) Same girl, like me too. (laughs) So that was hard. It's like, you know, it's a question everybody's going to ask, right? Or has asked, like, what did we lose in the pandemic? Um, I was writing, we sort of etched out these times. We tried to have a schedule as much as possible. We also, you know, my husband was pastoring at church at the time. It was a lot. Your husband who loves to chill and have free time, you know, your husband, (laughs) your unambitious, quiet husband. He could have told me, right? Like, like, dude, how did you even have time to be on the trolley hanging out? Like, why didn't you tell me right away? (laughs) There were like multiple times in your book that I was like sort of trying to like diagram Paul's schedule for myself and just like could not make it add up. I was like, this guy just has some powers. Both of your schedules. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Truly, truly. Well, like, yeah, I carry a lot up here. But yeah, his sort of like getting energy from doing these different things and running is something Mm -hmm. that I can't relate to. And so that's Mm -hmm. something that we're still like trying to figure out in our marriage, like what boundaries look like for our family, like how what you were saying before, Laura, like how do you help and serve the community or your congregation and not sacrifice your family? Paul is going to be, you know, he's like he's got the personality of a mayor but the heart of somebody who doesn't need to be mayor. Um, And so he's always going to find people that he wants to help and talk to. And so I've got to like empower him in that and also like let him know, like we really value you here too. And what does it look like even if you're not home for dinner every night, which actually he usually is like what, what just, what should our family schedule look like? And so that's been a little bit easier here in Pennsylvania because our kids they go to a K through five school and for the first time ever, they like all jump out of the van and walk into the same building and it's amazing. Did you just tell me you have one 
drop off. One. You drop all the kids. Never oh before. Oh my god. It's amazing. Oh my god. This is like this is like a heaven the likes of which I cannot even imagine from here, Taylor. I'm, that's amazing. That's incredible. But I listen. I'm so happy it'll, for you. <laughs> but this is the sad thing. I realized I've like I dreamed about this day, right? And like it'll go by and I'm like oh man, like it's two, I got to get the kids, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and two comes up so fast. Two is five minutes after 1030. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I'm like, that why even phone. take them yeah. to school? <laughs> like... <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> oh my God. So since you know that we're the same age now, I, like you, had kids kind of on the early side oh, of millennial yeah. childbearing timelines. But now all of my friends are hearing the TikTok of the biological clock and are like, we better get on this this love trolley, as you did. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so I'm watching some of the like closest, most precious people in my life tur- go back to clock wow. zero, right? You yeah. know, the newborns, the sleepless nights, the like bloody nipples, wow. all of it. And it sort of wasn't until I started to get those questions from friends of like, what nipple guard should Ooh. I use? Or like, when did you stop having your period? You know, mm-hmm. like the, the postpartum questions, the, the fourth trimester questions that I was like, it has been nine years since I oh. first peed on that stick in the Walmart bathroom. And that is where I huh. took that test. Wait, um, wait. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> wait, 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 you bought, you <laughs> You bought the test. I will tell you both the story. <laughs> I was at my family's cabin in rural Wisconsin, 27 miles. Literally, Walmart was the closest place in the region that I knew for fact I could get a pregnancy test, and it was 27 miles away. I just woke up. It, it, your book also reminded me of this, Taylor, because you found out you were pregnant with your second kid at four weeks. Is that, yes. am I getting that right? It, it was toast. It was, I still don't know what happened. But it, so I had that and this was my first kid. I just woke up wow. feeling funny. Like I just felt funny yeah. and I was maybe two or three days late on my period, like not even yeah. a serious amount of late. And I just like hauled ass to that that Walmart and like I was like I bought the test. I, first of all, I thought about stealing the test, you know, because I, I wasn't like a married person, but like a 16 year old. I don't even know what came over my mind, but I was like, pay for the test. Yeah. I paid for the test. And I was like, well, I could wait, you know, 40 minutes to get back to the house. I know it's 27 uh, miles yeah. away or I can just go in the bathroom. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like once you take the plunge to get the test, it's just sort of like, I got to do something with it. I am not a personality type who is capable of denying myself information. Yeah. Like the people Thank who you. didn't yeah. find, find out the sex of their child before birth. Like I feel no judgment towards that, but I'm not capable yeah. of that. Right. So I like peed on the stick in the Walmart and just screamed in the Walmart bathroom. <laughs> Luckily, I was alone in the bathroom. Anyway, this is a long story. Point being, I didn't realize until I started seeing all these newborns how far away I was from that point, you know, and yes. how hard I yeah. worked for a reality where both kids have a daytime destination mm. regularly, mm-hmm. which we can't even take for granted in the pandemic anymore. But anyway, cheers to right. how far you've come to that one drop off. And I hope 2 p.m. starts getting a little later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You are, that's so funny. I feel like you'd be one of those people that like Jesus healed and you'd be like, shh, don't tell anybody. And then you'd be like, okay. And then you'd walk away and be like, I'm healed. Do you know what the funniest part of that, I wrote an essay about this that's on the internet. If anybody wants to Google it, it's called 27 Miles to Walmart. But the funniest part of that story is after I peed on that stick, I was like 
this can't be right. Like, this can't be all the information I need to confirm this. Like, I need to see a medical professional immediately. And because this is like small town Wisconsin, I just walked across the street to the hospital and was like, I'll need a pregnancy test now. Wow. And because it was a small rural hospital, they were like, um, our two people who could do that are out to lunch, but there's a little clinic right down the street. You can go there to get a pregnancy test. And I was like, great, sounds good trundle on down down the street don't quite register the like billboard above this pregnancy clinic with the like angelic fetus and like they were definitely there to talk me out of having an abortion but like I wasn't looking for one that day so it didn't matter wow and I had this actually like I just went in there and peed on the same stick I had peed on and Walmart but there was like a person there right and like she yeah. was just in my people pleasing that person was vested with like ultimate authority like she had all the answers and what she was was just like a very sweet very pro-life christian woman in rural wisconsin who had right. like a box of pregnancy tests who had literally been to that walmart five minutes ago let you pick those up <laughs> i was like oh you need yeah, some yeah. more for today she, it was one of those moments where I could tell that this woman and I had a large distance between us, you know, and that yeah. in another situation, we wouldn't have found as much in common. But she was really sweet to me in that moment where when I really needed not to be alone yes. in this like transformational news. And I just loved her for it. I loved her so much that I actually brought my baby back to meet her the next summer. <laughs> and she was like so happy about it. Anyway, I am that person, too. I'm like, especially if like somebody's about to put me to sleep or like I'm just really happy with the way they treat me. I'm like, I don't want to know, like your politics. I don't want to know what you watch like no. at 7 or 8 p.m. Like, no. because right now I'm in love with you and I don't want that to end, you know? Totally. The th I remember in my desperation, I was like, do you have kids? And she was like, yeah, I have four yeah. kids. And I, and I said, do you like them? <laughs> <laughs> she was like, yeah, oh. a lot. And I was like, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was what I needed in that moment. That was all I needed in that moment. That's right. You know? <laughs> oh, Funny, oh. yes, yes. How old is your youngest? He just turned four this weekend. Oh, so you are, yeah. That yeah. Just, that felt like a big threshold to cross. We were like, okay, diapers are gone. Like, this is like yeah. not a baby anymore. Kind of, it really hit both my husband and I. We were like, wow, four-year-old mm -hmm. that we made. Incredible. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Anyway, Adrian, cover your ears. Adrian is also a parent of a child even younger than ours. So he is still navigating Whoa. some of the things that we are celebrating leaving behind. Sorry. <laughs> but only one, so. I, I, I look forward to joint drop-offs with her and her. <laughs> At least for now, so that's good. Uh, yeah. um, she's really cute. We like uh, her. Adrian, was there anything else you wanted to get in uh, in addition to my Walmart story? Well, I, your Walmart story made me think about the fact that like there is this weird way. So on the one hand, right, there's throughout the book the, the kind of worry about being that mom. Mm. Right? Like, could it be autism? I don't want to be that mm -hmm. mom. But on the other hand, of course, it made me realize that, you know, one thing that the journey of having a kid's all about is kind of, yeah, finding, as, as you and Laura were both saying just now, commonality with strangers, bonding intensely yeah. over, right? I mean, you mentioned that, that like things go a little woo-woo in, in some of the medical things and you're like, whatever, I'm here for it. Like, you know, it's like, it's fine. And I, I certainly, I've, uh, you know, burned incense or whatever. I'm like, I'm sure this does nothing, but like, whatever, um, you know, it can't hurt. And I was wondering whether like those two things hadn't occurred to me as like being kind of related to another, to one another, but that is it, isn't it? That like through kids, you kind of do become radically open to mm. people who are different from you. Yes. And that, yes. but it also yes. creates a, this, this kind of anxiety, I think, or it creates a huge occasion for anxiety. And that like, 
you know, one thing you, you mentioned, I think, in the book is diagnosis would have given given you a tribe, would have given you people that you could so connect to. Yeah. Conferences right. you could go well, to. Or just like a, a website, a term you can yes, Google, yes. Right? all this stuff. Totally. I wonder, like, what the role of community and making community with other parents looks like in, in this kind yeah. of journey. Like, you know, because there are these moments mm -hmm, when, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, they're, you build these bridges and then there are others where it's just like, like you're not you're, you're not seeing me for myself. You're seeing me as like that type of parent. Yeah, there are still times where you asked about community. So there there are different types. Uh, for one, one that I talk about in the book is sort of the handful of people where all you have to do is sort of describe a scenario. You know, Toast did this, and I know somebody who who doesn't know him as well would be like, okay, what's the big deal? But it's like those handful of people. All I have to do is tell them what happened. And they're like, oh, and, you know, it's just that knowing like, oh, I hear you. Like, that sounds hard instead of, yeah, thank you. Like the shorthand hand. instead of sort of writing it off or saying like, ah, oh, but he'll be fine. He'll go to college or whatever. And then there are people like he does have a mutation that would make him like a carrier of a glycogen storage disease. And there is a Facebook group I connect with of kids who both are diagnosed and are undiagnosed. So a lot of kids like TOFs only have one mutation instead of the two that you would need for a disease, but they still show weird like blood sugar symptoms and other things mm -hmm. that make me think of him. And so do I think like in 20 years, we'll know more? I do. I don't think he's asymptomatic and just kind of quietly carries this <laughs> this genetic mutation. But right now, that's what science tells us. So I, I do, you know, I understand. But those moms are helpful. You know, for a while, I talk in the book, it was the Russell Silver syndrome parents who would write about wetsuits and things like that, like the, taking the kid to the beach or the pool mm -hmm. in the wetsuit because they get they have no like body fat and they just get so cold and have trouble regulating their body temperature. I don't think he has Russell Silver, but he is not the kid. Like if he if he came home and was like, mom, in middle school, I want to run cross country. I'd be like, OK, and I'm going to like trail you on my bike <laughs> because <laughs> you can just see how quickly he gets overheated still the red face. He's not the one to right. stay outside yeah. and do things like that. Yeah. He's not interested in sports very mm -hmm. much. He wants to be a fencer, <laughs> but like beyond that, he like has no interest. And so I just still have questions, but, but it's helpful to know there are other moms and, and dads um, who have those questions too. And then that you do sometimes hit upon somebody who's like, my child is going through this and they are undiagnosed. And that's probably the big, like the most specific sort of connection I make is with somebody who they know their child has challenges or is ill in certain ways and is still and has genetic mutations but is still undiagnosed mm -hmm. but even with that it's hard because you know their child might not be able to go to school or might need assistance like a lot through the day and Tos is this kid who again it's been so mysterious because on the outside you look at him and you're like he's a little small but he's you know He's doing it, like watch him dance, you know, watch him make beats like he's killing it. Mm -hmm. And then you start sort of pulling back layers and you're like, he's still amazing. And there are these very real challenges that are sometimes hard to put into words. And all of those things can be true at the same time. Yes. Right, right. 
Okay, last question, which I'm taking from your beautiful essay in the New York Times, which would be a great on-ramp to anyone who isn't familiar with Taylor Harris's work after a mastectomy moving between gratitude and grief. I would like to know your current stance on nipple tattoos. Where Where are you on the nipple tattoo question? Well, you probably can't see, but behind me, I have one of the... um like the fake tattoos I like to order just to look at because they're totally. so beautiful. Yeah. And I got a lot of like encouraging messages from people who would DM me and be like, Vinny, yes, they would be like, Vinny is great. Vinny, the tattoo artist in Baltimore is great. I love that there was like yes. a guy who's developed a rep for this. Like you got to go see Vinny, you know? <laughs> yes. And they'd be like, and if you don't, if you don't want to drive to Baltimore, I know this person, like, let me know where you are. So there is like a serious network. I don't know yet if it's something I would ever do, or I just like the idea of letting myself consider it. I think after surgery, I was so, you know, you have drains. I went into shock after surgery from something they put on my body. Like I was just happy to be past surgery. And so I think when I met with that doctor, I was just like, Oh, I'm good. Like, I don't even know what I look like, but there's something there. I probably won't get breast cancer anymore. Like, let's just keep it moving. And now I'm sort of stepping back. Like maybe it's okay to look down and feel uncertain, like grateful and uncertain Mm. about how I look. You know, I think I've been married to Paul for what, 16 years. That's a different thing. Like, I don't know how I would feel with these breasts, you know, if I if I hadn't known this guy that I'm with for so long. Um, so there's just lots of questions I still have. And I think I thought yeah. maybe those questions would be gone or that they wouldn't be important. And I think now I've had space in this year where we're in a pandemic, but my kids are in school masked to like stop and think about like, have I lost something in having this preventive medical procedure? Yeah, yeah, man. Grateful and uncertain feels like such a beautiful sort of holding container for this Mm. entire book and this entire conversation. Like that feels like exactly the energy. Grateful and uncertain. Yeah. Yeah. So too am I in this pandemic, in this global emergency. All right, Taylor. Well, we know your time is valuable and that pickup waits for no one. Um, (laughs) So so we will thank you for sharing your time and talent with us. This was such a treat. Thank you so much. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.